welcome to the Cool Pizza Party Podcast. My name is Lubitsa. And I'm Adam. Cool. Oh, we're opening the podcast. Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, this week, we're going to talk about, um, what did we talk about? Uh, inside, We've already talked about it, yeah. yeah. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, peek behind the giveaway. scenes. <laughs> yeah. Um. We already talked about it, and now we're recording the intro afterwards. Okay, so we we talked about um, Scalia. Scalia. We talked about Bernie versus Hillary, and pragmatism, and realism, yeah. and ideology, and how those things we act like there's like yeah nothing there. But. It's almost like we talked about how Scalia is like Hillary, and they're both like Kissinger. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I'm gonna leave that. And there. you had something in the middle there that was really good about the layoffs at the air conditioner plant in Illinois that ties in. Yeah. Although we could tie that into like anyway. every discussion. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. yeah. We got to talk about Flint and Greece and how they're the same thing next time. Okay. Stuff like that in the postal service, same thing. Okay. What? Okay. Oh, not the band. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh. Yeah, so we talked about that stuff, and then on top of that, we, um, like, last month, recorded a podcast about some of the TV that was coming out, um, mostly before it actually came out, and now it's, like, come out, so it'll <laughs> it's, be- It's almost like we were TV reviewers that get previews, but we just found them on the internet. Yeah, and- Nobody gave them to us. Yeah, and now, but then we waited so long that now we're behind. <laughs> But anyway, um, we're also going to edit that uh, to be into in this podcast as well. So basically, you are going to get politics and TV this time. Um, and hopefully, you will find it interesting. Um, cool. So yeah. All right. Let's get started. Okay. <laughs> Some politics happened this week. Do you want yeah. to talk about those politics? I mean, maybe. It depends. Only if we have something interesting to say about them. I really hate. It just hearing recaps. I think that's our main goal with this podcast is to like actually say some stuff that isn't constantly just being repeated. Yeah, well, I definitely want to talk about Scalia in, in a general way. Okay. And you want to talk about some TV? Did you have something in mind? Yeah. Um, what are you going to talk about? Oh, I think maybe we'll talk about The Real Housewives of uh, the Potomac. It's a good show. Yeah. Or actually, I think it's just Real Housewives of Potomac. Whatever. Either way, we'll probably talk about that. And um, then at the end, we might come in with some TV recommendations from like last month, uh, from an episode we recorded last month but never really put out. Um, so maybe I'll try to edit that into this show as well. So we'll see. You'll know more than we do by the end. Okay. So Scalia died this week. Did you know that would be so? <laughs> What? That was like my reaction when I saw it on Twitter. I was like, <gasps> then I was like quickly scrolling through looking for other tweets about it yeah. and like. Were you excited? Around. Were you secretly excited? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would be a lie if I said I wasn't. Yeah. I mean, it's hard not to be, I yeah. guess. Yeah. I mean, I would feel bad if like when he was alive, I'd been like gushing about him. And suddenly as soon as he died, I turned around and started talking shit. But I was literally like ranting at you about him the night before <laughs> so it's just so i mean it's not funny i guess it is a sad coincidence but it's just like i don't i don't feel too bad ranting about him now that he's dead because i was literally doing it the night <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i said to you like i guess we shouldn't say ill of the dead but 
and then I said something. Yeah. I don't. I didn't want to trash him though. I don't know. It feels feels weird. But I would normally trash him. So yeah. I think the I best don't thing think we really ever trash him is more just like absolute anger and fury at his decisions and frustration with his bullshit judicial philosophy. Yeah, I think his ideas are shit. Yeah. So. So I mean, is that trashing him? I don't know. Not if we have specific things to say about it. The best thing I saw about him, I just saw it this morning, was um, an article. I just saw that headline in the blurb. It was like, why should we respect a man who never had any respect for anybody? <laughs> <laughs> that is good. I did also see an Onion headline that was like, despite claiming to be pro-life, Scalia has died or something <laughs> like that. It's like, oh, but I also laughed. Nice. Uh, well, I want to talk about his judicial philosophy in a, a, a way. But I think the best take that I heard about Scalia we saw on Democracy Now, the author of that book you're reading. Oh, yeah. Who? Ian Milheiser. Oh, and uh, you're reading a book he wrote about how awful the Supreme Court has been throughout history. Yeah, it's called like the Supreme Court. A history of comforting the comforted and afflicting yeah. the afflicted or, or something like that. I'm reading yeah. the book, but the title is not the catchiest, but it is what got me interested in the yeah. book. So. so he was on there saying how um, Scalia as an academic has this influential philosophy of originalism, textualism. We're only going to pay attention to what the words say and what were meant at the time they were written. Right. But as uh, Ian Milhauser, is that his name, yeah. said, he never actually practiced that way. Yeah. Take any decision like Citizens United, right? The First Amendment doesn't say you have the right to spend as much money as you want on political elections. He just decided it did. But. Yeah, he said that um, ultimately Scalia, in his scholarly writings, was much more consistent towards his ideology than he was in actual yeah. practice. And that at some point, I think even Scalia sort of conceded this by starting to call himself a faint-hearted originalist. Yeah. I don't know. I think even if... if even you <laughs> don't see the value of adhering to your own philosophy <laughs> in real life, then I feel like that points to a pretty clear weakness. Yeah, that. well, I think it's a bullshit idea. Ian well, Milheiser yeah, is being too generous. Too. No, obviously. Yeah, he's being too generous to even say his ideas were good. Do you remember, I was trying to tell you about this like a month ago. I got really excited about something I read that related Scalia to something about like music that i didn't know um, no. <laughs> so i guess there is a movement maybe in the 80s of musicologists they wanted to play beethoven exactly the way beethoven intended they would look at music of the past oh i remember you telling me about this yeah and there's this big vogue for making it sound exactly like it would have back then yeah well obviously that's stupid <laughs> nobody knows what would have sounded back like back then you know um when you write a piece of music when you write musical notation, you can say it's forte or mezzo forte or extra forte, I don't know. But you can't say like the exact precise value as if we're computer programs and we're just going to read it as if we're the exact same computer program you wrote it for. Uh, I also can't help but point out that even back then when Beethoven was like personally conducting, <laughs> uh, if did he do that? I don't know. In my mind, he did. Let's say he did. Yeah. Uh, when he was alive, the symphonies, we can't be certain that they actually sounded the way he intended them to sound, because he was, of course, very deaf. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I'm sorry. I just, like, I don't know. I guess I could say that that read into that more, but yeah. I'll just let you. 
Well, I came across that reference on um, a guy, Seth Edenbaum, who's like, a, I don't know what his job is, if he's like a philosopher or art critic or just a cranky person on the internet who has a good blog. And he has this big essay he wrote for himself that is... <laughs> That's how I hope someone describes me one day. <laughs> I don't know what she does. I don't know if she's just a cranky person on the internet or someone with a good podcast, but... <laughs> Uh, he has some big essay that's mostly about avant-garde art and but touches on politics and philosophy and everything and uh he's talking about this there's this also got a guy who has a good blog a law professor called jack balkan he has the balkanization blog Mm -hmm. it's a good thing to check out if you're interested in reading about the law and some of this so i'm going to read something that's a mishmash of quotes from those two and also somebody else who's quoting them and i don't know where the quotes begin and end so i'm just gonna read it because it's logically consistent okay yeah but it's relating that to the law because uh balkan jack balkan is a law professor and he found he like wrote a review of this music book this music uh scholarship where the guy was talking about this movement to reproduce things exactly how they would have been and what bullshit that that was uh i have some notes here We'll edit this out, maybe, me looking through my notes. But so we like to include the process, too, so maybe not. We'll see. It just depends. Maybe if I'm editing it, I'll be kind to you, or maybe not. <laughs> uh, so he says that their ideas of historical performance practice, these people who were, you know, recreating things with what they thought would be exactly, on which their claim of authenticity was based, is derived from a selective reading of history in the service of a modernist ideology and i think what he's saying is just that art had progressed to a point where they wanted to recreate it exactly as it had been in the past and he's saying that they think i'm criticizing for them them for that but what i'm really saying is that their accomplishment is totally consistent with our cultural moment and in some ways it's like the highest authentic voice of their time trying and failing to recreate the past exactly so anyway i like that part about how he's saying uh, they might be the highest form of like art trying to imitate it here, even if it's incorrect. Uh, and Scalia similarly, you know, is situated in a history, right? Mm-hmm. He felt like coming after the, uh, what is it? The Rehnquist court or no, the Warren court yeah. that the, ju- the justice system had gone too far into liberalism, that they were rewriting the constitution. Especially in, in terms of uh, criminal justice rights. Like, yeah. Uh, you know, like the Miranda warning and things like that. They've like rolled all of that way back with the yeah. uh, Rehnquist and now Roberts court. Yeah. And Scalia, when he was under the Rehnquist court, helped roll back the, what is it now? Like you don't actually have to read the Miranda rights. If you don't, it's okay. Yeah. And there's one of the main things that they added was the, um, uh, what is it called? Not good intention. The good faith, ex- good exception. faith exception. Yes. Yeah. Meaning basically like you do need a warrant and to have a warrant, you know, you need like, or to do a search and seizure, you need probable cause, things like that. But, uh, and there's been a lot of cases defining what prob- what constitutes probable cause, but uh, then they just basically managed to throw all that case law out the window that protected people, uh, citizens from the state by saying, oh, there's a good faith exception. And if the police officer has like a good reason to sort of basically think that he can come, I mean, I'm simplifying it, yeah. but not by that much, yeah. then it's fine. And he can do a search and seizure for without probable cause or warrant. Or and that's in the constitution, right? That's what the fourth, is it the fourth amendment says? 
Yeah. Uh, you have the right to due process, but hey, if we mess it up, oh, no big deal. Yeah, it's like the Fourth and Fourteenth Amendment together, really, that give us like yeah, all, but all of our right. I just, process, I just right? mean like Scalia. That's not in the Constitution that there's a good faith exception. Oh no, no, no. <laughs> and yet Scalia finds it anyway. Or um, he said recently, I think it was recently that nowhere does the Constitution say like if you had a trial and you were found guilty but you're really innocent, the Constitution doesn't say we can't put you to death because you had due process. Mm. You had a trial. Yeah. You had a process. And even if now we know you're innocent, well, maybe, you know, the Constitution doesn't say we can't still put you to death. Yeah. Uh, anyway, my comparison to the musicologists is just to say that, and this is back to the, the big quote I have here, um, Social mediation inevitably changes whatever it mediates, whether we're talking about recreating old music or reading the Constitution. There can be no appeal to a higher authority. There's just the text. And any attempt at such an appeal to higher authority is in fact a covert assertion of your own authority. Mm. Scalia is saying, I know what this means, yeah. right? Yeah, He's totally. not, yeah. So authenticists like other ideologues try to discredit competing presentations as incorrect or you know, more specifically incompetent when the proper focus should be on whether the performances or interpretations are more or less effective or enjoyable artistically. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And that applies equally well to the musicologist or Scalia practicing law. Yeah. Because I mean, one of the main problems we've had with like this conservative court and certainly that originalist um, philosophy is that it's there's actually a complete disregard for the effectiveness or the outcome. Yeah. I forget how they you put it there, but or artistic enjoyment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm not so worried about that. But um, you know, when you have a, a court just and a justice promoting the idea that you should vote just based on these original uh, ideas and intentions and this strict reading, what it leaves out is like, yeah, okay, but I mean, the most obvious thing, but the world has changed since then. And, you know, we need to keep up with that. And also, by the way, you know, a lot of those founding fathers did not assume that they were writing a constitution for the ages. I mean, Thomas Jefferson himself said that he thought every generation should rewrite the constitution to fit their time and needs so just i mean on its face it, it this idea makes no sense but certainly in terms of the actual outcome of applying this judicial philosophy you know the idea that you want to be oblivious to the actual effects on yeah. the real world that your decisions will lead to is not only preposterous it's like i feel like it's a dereliction of duty you're not taking your job seriously because actually every decision he whether he's in the majority or minority, every opinion he writes has an effect, you know? A lot of his minority opinions, he would, like, mock um, the majority or, um, you know, sort of fearmonger uh, about, well, what happens next? And, like, uh, like so he his worst outcome scenario would be like, what, is gay marriage next? And then it was like, Yep. You know, but even with that, he actually influenced people because what people realized was, oh, 
the justices are thinking about this. This is in the horizon. So with literally like every written opinion and action that he was taking, he was affecting outcomes in the real world, whether he wanted to, you know, use that as part of his judicial philosophy or not. And I know that there are other justices, not just originalists, who have um, a, a subscribed to a jurisprudence style or you know, ideology or whatever, where they're like, um, I don't, I shouldn't think about how this is going to affect society at large. Yeah, That's you, how we get like Citizens United, though. You hear Supreme Court justices or people who talk about them say that that's what the Supreme Court is supposed to do. They're not supposed to think right. at all about those things, when in reality, most of them do, right? One effect that Scalia's so. dissents had too, right, is that like conservatives have been really good about getting cases to the Supreme Court and they'll look at the dissents of Scalia or another conservative and for use cues, it yeah. yeah, for cues about what cases to bring that they might get a favorable ruling on. Yeah, exactly. Sort of um, how the cases should be framed or shaped or like yeah. what is the next question the Supreme Court basically wants to deal with, or at least the conservative justices. You, you only need four, though. So, I mean, yeah. to take a case, you need four justices. One other point I just wanted to make about this like interpretation of the law and stuff, and this is from Seth Edenbaum's gigantic, uh, far-reaching essay that I recommend. Um, and I don't have the quotes from this part, so I'm going by memory. He talks about how ultimately that's why we have a rule of law, and we don't just have law, because law itself is not enough. And uh, that any appeal to just being rational and reading the law is just an appeal to authority. And that rule of reason will always, has always devolved into the rule of the reasonable as defined by the strong. The rule of law, on the other hand, you know, our actual process of litigators arguing with each other and having competing interpretations of the law uh, creates a much broader and more um, active, malleable, egalitarian justice system um, because it's, it's public language and a public description of the world, as opposed to a single individual's author authoritarian viewpoint of the law handed down. And he says if the law were so obvious that you could be originalist, then we wouldn't need lawyers. Yeah. You wouldn't or, need to interpret it. Or justices whose job it is to interpret the Constitution. Yeah, yeah his very existence. The idea that, I mean, they the, this was built into, like, through the in the Constitution, yeah. means that they wrote it with the idea that people will develop their understanding and it will change and yeah. it will need to be interpreted and reinterpreted. Yeah. So, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah, just him. The fact that there is a Supreme Court yeah, exactly. disproves the idea of originalism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I really think, I mean, I guess I could be wrong, but I really think that this is just going to be, you know, this isn't like the first time that um, there have been people in the court who have like wild and crazy and extreme ideas, <laughs> you know, and then they're just like a blip, you know, yeah. and it like for a generation, people lived with that idea and talked about it and debated it. And then as soon as that person died, the the idea basically died with them. Because, I mean, while, like, Clarence Thomas is also quite an originalist, um, it's not like there are, like, other Supreme Court justices, conservative justices who, like, agreed with Scalia's take. They often vote together in the majority, but when you, like, read their opinions, they're they are voting for completely different reasons than Scalia <laughs> for, the you know, the same opinion outcome. So... I think it's really possible that ultimately, like, 
even conservatives will be like, cool idea, but, you know, we're going to go with the different And he is more famous for his dissents. Yeah. Yeah. So even in his own time, he isn't necessarily the most influential justice in reality. Although people love saying that. I think people just like his character. Yeah. You know? That's one that's one reason I didn't want to shit all over him when he died is like, well, if Ruth Gator Bins, Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually likes hanging out with him and stuff, you know, there must be something redeemable there. On the other hand, Scalia is a man who believes the devil actually walks the earth Among and literally Yeah. Tricks people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look that up if you haven't read that interview because it's amazing. Yeah. Like truly, truly amazing. Like to the point where I was like deeply worried that this was a man who was actually sitting on our Supreme Court. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, uh, I guess to wrap it up, uh, I am more than willing to shit on Scalia, <laughs> you know, alive or dead, although it sounds a lot worse when, anyway, uh, but the, um, the thing that I guess I can say that's the nicest in terms of him is that he wrote opinions that were like very, cl- like I had to read some of them for classes and um, he wrote opinions that were like very clear, very easy to read, and that oftentimes are um, entertaining. You know, <laughs> like they like make fun of people, they mock people. I I forget. Like he, I mean, some of the like mushy gushy, like like the language he used in these official <laughs> Supreme Court documents was, like, I guess, entertaining is the best thing I can come up with, but um. I think, like, to the extent that he made the Supreme Court accessible to people by making it entertaining, whether it was the oral arguments that, like, we often hear about get, like, reported on, or his opinions, um, that's, like, a good thing. Because I, I do think that, unfortunately, especially on the left, we don't pay enough attention to the Supreme Court and the real power that yeah. it has to shape the country. Yeah. You can listen to their oral arguments, too. We used to hear it on the radio driving around when we lived in D.C. And then we'd come home and listen to it because we're not cool people. (laughs) Because we were interested. It's 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 nice. It's good. Yeah, it's like very... It's engaging. It's not boring. Like, you know, and part of that is Scalia because you'll hear him say crazy shit and you're just like, oh, my God. And then it's like we, you know, turn off the car and come home and be like, I got to hear what he said next. You know, (laughs) like. Although I like hate listening to Alito the most. Yeah. Oh, he's just not smart. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He'll say the most like he'll arrogantly assert the most stupid things and ask stupid hypotheticals yeah is it, it's his lack of awareness of how it's like he's proud he of asking dumb questions <laughs> yeah so a uh, hot tip from cold pizza party <laughs> <laughs> listen to the oral arguments you can yeah. go to oyez uh is it dot com or dot org well just search oyez you know yeah. how google works and... yeah and if you're interested in getting into the supreme court it's not hard you can read scotus blog too yeah that's and, super uh, helpful Slate actually has a good podcast amicus about stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, I... well, I want to segue that into a discussion of Bernie and Hillary. Oh. Yeah. Because I think it syncs up in some ways. Okay. Well, let's uh, take a break. Yeah. Let's wrap it up real quick. I'm going to yeah. shit all over your segue too, That's apparently. <laughs> um, and then we'll uh, be right back with our Bernie Hillary discussion. All right. We're back. 
We don't have any in- we don't have any like interstitials though. So you probably didn't there's no music playing. Unless no commercials. Unless we fake a commercial and add it in later. <laughs> so you might have heard that. We'll see. We don't know what's going to happen. Uh so yeah, I want to sort of segue what we were talking about Scalia about into talking about Bernie versus Hillary a little bit. Okay. Um so this article came out and kind of beat me to the punch although it's a good article to read uh because it it's one of those things where it validates your anger towards everything else <laughs> uh it's called the pragmatic case for bernie sanders it's on the atlantic it's by christopher d cook and it's it's uh, an article full of this sort of thing lubitsa and i have been saying to each other why do they think hillary is the pragmatic choice why do they think she can get things done first of all republicans hate her and um i don't know obama wasn't able to get things done i don't know if you're listening to this podcast like you've probably already yelled this at your significant other watching the debates also and even if you haven't we've already done a rant about why uh bernie over hillary like yeah have we probably yeah i think so Unless it well, I think it just happens every time we talk about this, really. But yeah, I think we've definitely talked about some of our issues with uh, Hillary before. Yeah, I mean, I still don't understand why somebody would want to vote for Hillary. I don't say that to be mean. I just don't. I don't get it. Um, this, if you're saying she's more electable, well, I don't know that that's true. And and you can't. That's not a like quantifiable measure or a value judgment. Certain, yeah, but also certainly based on polls, she's not more yeah. electable. Yeah. I mean, when you hypothet, which I mean, these polls, let's be real, are like, yeah, flimsy yeah. <laughs> on their face. Like, I mean, just the idea that we could possibly know how Hillary or Bernie would do against Marco Rubio is like yeah. ridiculous. But that being said, we do have the numbers as they currently stand and it's like i think rubio is the only one that potentially could be both um hillary and bernie but it was within the margin for bernie whereas he outright beats hillary and rubio would have to win his own nomination yeah which is looking very unlikely (laughs) because he's not a good candidate he's fumbling things yeah nobody likes him anyway yeah but i mean when you do them like matched up with like trump or cruz you know, Hillary doesn't always win and Bernie does and like handily. So um, just in terms of the numbers. I don't know what Rubio's constituency is besides like pundits and newscasters. They like Rubio. Um, we listen to conservative radio. Sometimes when I hate myself, I get on Breitbart.com oh, or follow really? those Twitter people. <laughs> well, I like to know what people are oh, thinking, you know, yeah, I can't. I can't yeah. do it. And sometimes you hear we, we you hear random people on like Coast to Coast AM talk about politics. <laughs> so we you know we pick things up uh, that are and, different from our viewpoint. Is what you're trying to say? Yeah, yeah, but that are different from people who the punditry who oh. they don't spend any time you know looking into what especially conservatives actually want. But there's no constituency as far as I can tell for Rubio. He they let him announce that John Boehner was stepping down at like a Christian convention and he still can't get their support. Well, I think a big part of it is he, um, 
is the plastic politician that you imagine the stereotypical politician to be and he proves it over and over again he had that awkward water bottle incident when he tried to do a redress after the um state of the union a few years ago and then everyone like laughed at that for so long and then right like as he was starting to maybe have his star go up like uh he did okay in Iowa and whatnot. I don't know. He was celebrating third place like it was first place. Yeah. Um, he has this Rubio robot moment, and it just confirms everything that we all previously believed about him. And I really think, like, um, one thing that's majorly overlooked is, in the day-to-day aspects of the horse race is, like, sort of optics. And, like, anytime that someone like really confirms what we already believe about them, that's going to stick in the general public's mind way longer than, um, uh, you know, some gaffe that's just random. Uh, And I think that um, going back to this Bernie Hillary thing, that's one reason why I'm in terms of electability really surprised at how uh, willing Democrats are to overlook the email scandal. Because to me, like what I say to you all the time is I don't think there's anything in there about Benghazi that's going to be like a smoking gun email or whatever. I don't even care about Benghazi. I don't even know what the big deal is with Benghazi. I don't know. I know. I know there might be something there. I don't know. Whatever. My point is, regardless of any email, if, if she had done everything correctly, there was no top secret emails that were leaked. They were safer on her server than through the State Department, all of which is nonsense, obviously. But let's just go with that and say she never did anything wrong. The very fact that she took it upon herself to make her email, to put her emails on a private server and make them private to make it so that they would be out of the reach of reporters and the public when it comes to FOIA requests. That's all I need to know. That is the scandal because it literally confirms everything that people say about the Clintons in terms of they think they're above the law. They're so secretive. You know, they can't be trusted. They're liars. Like, I think that's why the email scandal, we're not addressing it right now. It's like been put off during the primary. But if she becomes the general election nominee, I personally worry that that will be a much bigger issue than it currently is. Forget that Republicans are hoping the FBI probe is going to bring something out, but just how much it confirms the idea that you can't trust her. Yeah. And then she and her, when you look at um do you trust uh Hillary, do you find her trustworthy? Then it's like 64% against, yeah. you know? Yeah, it must be people that are voting for her don't find her trustworthy. The yeah. numbers are so high. Yeah. So, um so that to me speaks to a major issue with her electability, just like the Rubio robot thing is like, oh, it confirms what we believe about him. And that's why it's sinking his um, hopes of becoming the nominee. This email scandal really confirms what a lot of people, especially yeah. people who lived through the 90s, yeah. believe about the Clintons. And then you hear that um, you know, she gave these secret talks to Wall Street and right. took home almost a million dollars just for speaking there. And she won't release the transcripts. Yeah, and it's like another check mark. Oh, she's secretive. Oh, she lies. Yeah, I think that she's is a good... She's not trustworthy. I think that is a good way to put it. Like, what matters is when appearances confirm your beliefs, yeah. uh, the way you per- your perceptions. Yeah. That's when appearances in politics really count. It's much harder to counter perceptions. Yeah. But when there's a bad perception 
and appearances support that yeah that's trouble yeah yeah so um, well a co- I, that reminds me of talking about well i'm talking about benghazi the real scandal that nobody picks up on apparently but these you can read the articles like in the new york times and, and shit uh they were running arms out of libya into syria to fund rebels and where did those arms end up like in isis or or al-nusra the al-qaeda affiliate there that we were directly working with even though it's al-qaeda and our only the only flimsy pretext we have to wage war in the middle east is that we're combating al-qaeda and now we're working with them in syria against assad and uh that's the real Benghazi scandal is that Libya was in such turmoil, there were arms everywhere. There's a great article about arms smuggling in Libya. Man, where did I read it? The reporter was on the ground just talking to um, real people um, who are smuggling arms in Libya um, just to see how it works and get a sense of everything. They have, uh, because of the collapse of the government, um, ethnic tensions shot up. You know, they were like always boiling, always simmering, and now they boiled over because you don't have the dictator there to uh, keep, you know, keep everything in line. So the the people from the southern tribes don't have statehood. Um, they're not citizens of anything, of Libya or anywhere. So they are the ones running arms. And because the government collapsed, it's just, there's arms everywhere. Um, she talked to like young kids who are trading arms who said, oh, we just go to like abandoned warehouses and take AK-47s and bullets, and then we, um, you know, sell it to militants who take it up to places like Syria or down south to Boko Haram, and that's that's Hillary Clinton's legacy. That's what I was about to say to you. But oh, don't you know that's another reason you're supposed to vote for Hillary because she has um, foreign uh, relations experience, and don't you know she was a great Secretary of State, and Bernie Sanders doesn't know anything about international relations. Yeah. And what's, this is her legacy, Libya, Syria, uh, Honduras. Honduras. Now, I didn't even know about Honduras until I read some article recently, but in 2009, um, there was like a military coup to oust the elected president who was a socialist. And you know, we don't know to what extent the CIA or anyone, any covert American agency was involved with that. So I can't pretend that they were because I just don't know. But of course, in the past in South America, they have. And what we do know is that Hillary Clinton uh, rejected calls from like the UN and national government to condemn the coup. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, tacitly supported it. So we have a refugee crisis from Syria. We have arms flooding out of Libya. And we have refugees coming from Honduras. Um, in D.C., it's all the immigrants. They're all from Honduras, Central uh, El Salvador, the Central American countries torn apart by violent strife because of drug gangs, um, which is also a legacy of Bill Clinton's, you know, war on drugs and Reagan's on Bush's, obviously, Bush Sr. And uh, so that's Hillary Clinton's experience, yeah. right? That's what makes her a supposedly an electable candidate. Also, uh, Jeffrey Sachs, by the way, has a good article about that on Common Dreams, where he says that uh, in 2012, he worked for Kofi Annan at the UN, and Kofi Annan like came out of retirement to try to negotiate a ceasefire in Syria. But Hillary Clinton's State Department, and presumably Obama, said there will be no ceasefire unless Assad steps down from power. 
How are you going to... That's not a negotiating position. No, that's... Well, exactly. That's not a negotiating position. Yeah. You're exploding the negotiations, basically, yeah. to make sure that you... It's a poison you, pill. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because that's not what you actually want. Yeah. So, anyway, stuff to check out there. Also, apparently, her, there's an article on Bloomberg that says... Uh, it's, it's a quote from some Wall Street business leader, something like that, in... Bloomberg news about how she made the State Department like a great friend for American business. Mm. And that included in Haiti, um, su su supporting or, or opposing the raising the minimum wage in Haiti, mm. Good. the American Good. State Department opposing. Yeah, <laughs> they, they haven't had a tough go of it yeah. lately or historically or anything. <laughs> yeah. So Jesus. we're getting into Hillary's record, which is a great reason not to vote for her. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, what I originally wanted to talk about is just whether she's electable. What's the other reason to vote for her? Whether she's pragmatic right? mm. or she's pragmatic, you mm -hmm. know, she'll get things done. And uh, that's the that reminded me why this article, the pragmatic case for Bernie Sanders on The Atlantic, why I liked it is um, any progressive who has been paying attention during the Obama years is pissed because he never pushed enough for anything and all the policies he ended up with were right of center because he started from center or center left position to get into the negotiating process. And uh, anyway, this argue, this article argues you got to start with, you know, a broad left agenda. When you get to the negotiating table, look how Republicans yeah. do it. They don't come in and say, uh, I don't know, something mild. Yeah. They say crazy things. Yeah. All abortion is murder. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that article is good, but it's kind of, it says all the obvious things that I'm sure you've said to one another frustratedly during debates. <laughs> uh, I wanted to get more into what it means to be a pragmatist and non-ideological, if, if that's, if that sounds good. There was a, uh, an article that Ezra Klein had on his website, Vox, a while back, a couple weeks back, just making the typical pundit point that well, you should elect Hillary because, you know, politics isn't that great. We need a realist. And, like, politics is hard, and we need someone who's been there, knows it, <laughs> oh gets it, you know? Yeah. For some reason, the pundit class has this notion that Bernie doesn't know how politics works. He says Bernie Sanders' vision of politics is less realistic. It's a vision suffused with hope. I liked this part. He says there's never been anything audacious about asking voters to hope. No one knows better than Obama himself. Apparently, Obama said, my bet is that the candidate who can project hope still is the candidate who the American people will gravitate towards. Almost predicting a win for Bernie. <laughs> but um, anyway, Ezra Klein says, the argument for Clinton is that she's best handed, suited to handle this war of partisan attrition. She knows how to work the bureaucracy, defend against a hostile Congress, and find incremental gains where they exist. This is a realistic vision of a Democratic presidency after Obama. Okay, so we've already talked about how, no, Hillary isn't the best one to do that. Um, apparently, back in the mid-2000s, Matt Taibbi followed Bernie Sanders around Congress to see how things are actually done and was impressed by how well Bernie was knew all the tricks. Mm. He knew how to work the bureaucracy. He picked up all these tidbits about how um, it turns out they hold meetings like in rooms with the lights almost off because they don't want reporters to come in and they don't want it to be comfortable for mm. reporters to be there or for 
legislators to be there necessarily. And uh, I don't know. I, I haven't read that article yet, but check it out because it sounds really good. <laughs> <laughs> and my point is just, yeah, Bernie knows that stuff probably better than Hillary does. Uh, let's ignore that and just address this question of pragmatism. And what, what's the image that she is more effective? What does that even come from when Bernie has a record that you can point to and say, here's all the successes he's had in Congress I with Republicans? Yeah, I don't know, especially because when you are talking about being real, realistic, I mean, okay, well, let's like talk about reality, you know, and the reality is that real unemployment is still very high, you know, um, I was just telling you about these like layoffs that happened in, I think it's like Indiana or Illinois or somewhere um, of this uh, place called Carrier Air Conditioner Factory, I guess. Oh, it's in Indianapolis. Okay. And um, they just announced, uh, along with actually a different company that's around there that also makes some kind of air conditioning parts, but just Carrier Air Conditioner um air conditioner, is going to lay off 14,000 people um, over the next couple weeks and send their jobs to Mexico. Sounds like a lot of people. Is that a lot of people? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, their whole reasoning for doing that when they announced it is that their profit margins dictate that they have to, which sounds realistic, right? (laughs) Don't blame us that your jobs are leaving. Yeah. You're the ones who've made all the products this far along and we've just collected the excess profits from your labor. Yeah. Um, so the, you know, the idea is like, look, our profit margins dictate this and we've got to be realistic, man. And so, you know, there's no way that the people at the top can take a pay cut or I don't know anything like that. And, you know, this is, this is capitalism and it's hard. And so (laughs) we have to do what we have to do and it's not personal. Um, but the reality is that um, this is a company that like engaged pretty heavily in stock buyback programs, which basically means that um, after a company makes all of its profits from the work of those those yeah. workers that they just laid off, um, they are supposed to take that money and like reinvest it into. Uh, and they've paid everybody and everything. They're supposed to take the money and reinvest it in research and development, right? So that they um, build a new factory where they can build more conditioning units or they develop a new type of unit or make something better or more efficient or whatever. But instead, especially since um, like federal interest rates are at um, or have been negative, so people also are incentivized to borrow uh, money. Well, not people, corporations. Yeah. Um, although I guess I'm adopting the Romney (laughs) stance. Uh, anyway, so basically what the companies do is they take all this excess money that they have and instead of developing it in building a new factory, which would create more jobs or, you know, funding this new research or whatever, which would also probably create more jobs, they just go onto the stock market and buy back their stocks, which keeps their stock price high because, you know, obviously. And the people who profit the most from that are the CEOs at the top who own, of course, a a lot of stock in the company already. Um, And they're also the ones who are in an effort to comfort people while they announce the company, um, 
apparently the manager who like I, I mean announced the the move of the company apparently the manager basically told the um employees that they're moving the plant to Mexico because it will like basically make the company's owners richer by increasing the profit margins yeah. So they're making themselves richer with through the stock buyback program. They're making themselves richer by cutting, going to Mexico, where they're certainly going to be, you know, obviously cutting wages and there's less worker protections and yeah. things like that. And it's all because this is the hard reality of what has to happen. But that's not true, right? Like, yeah. there's a lot of different things that could happen. For one thing, like I suggested, they could build, they could use the money for different things rather than just gaming the system and keeping themselves personally wealthy. Basically, taking the money that these um, workers, yeah, yeah. you know, the profits that they created, and then you, you know, using them yeah. to buy back the stocks, which keeps their uh, stock they're basically personal net worth high and so it's just it's there you just see the you can practically draw a map yeah. from you know from the workers to the <laughs> owner's yeah, yeah. pockets they like practically legally stole money from their company yeah. and put it in their pocket yeah, they, they took the profits uh pumped it into the stock and and now profited. it's their private wealth yeah. because they own a ton of the stocks personally yeah. privately yeah yeah oh and that by spending that excess profit, they tanked the company. And now they have to, oh, we have to take it overseas because the company is tanking. So now we'll make even more profit. Yeah. yeah. And so um, so there's like, you know, they, this company, I'm sure, like all companies in America that are big enough, receive tax subsidies and things like that, right? So yeah. we could have said, hey, if you don't um, have a certain amount of American jobs, you can't get the tax subsidy or... Uh, if you move to Mexico, um, I don't know. Like, my point is just that there are, there are other options besides, like, what happened. But the idea is that um, there's only one way we can do things, and this is the realistic way of doing it. Do you know what I'm saying? This is, like, a convoluted way of saying that, like, we're told uh, over and over again yeah. that, like, look, Hillary is the – She's hard and realistic, and this is the only way we can do things because that's the way things work. Yeah. But the reality is the situation is much more complicated than that, and actually there are lots of different ways of doing it, and there's new ideas that would actually make things better for the most amount of people, right? Like if mm -hmm. the if there were some kind of protection in terms of like connecting the tax subsidies to the yeah, amount yeah, of American yeah. jobs or whatever. I, I know I know what you're talking about because you're trying to connect it to realism, right? Yeah. That's where I'm trying to get with Hillary too. Um, it's like sorry, it's like a super convoluted way of getting there. But I was just thinking about uh, this story, and I had to like. <laughs> also, I just wanted to say it proves like all businesses should be worker-owned businesses because oh, yeah. if they were losing for sure, if they had been losing profit, which apparently the company wasn't, they yeah yeah it was making profit. They would have invested it in the company. Um, or if it was losing profit, you know, they would have laid people off sooner rather than let it tank so that they can take it overseas. Yeah. But, um, yeah, realism. Uh, I think it, it's what we talked about sometimes where, um, some people say they have no ideology, but you can't have no ideology. This, the company says it's acting rationally, yeah. but it's not acting without an ideology. The ide ideology is like, well, all that matters is that the company prospers and that we at the head of the company prosper. Yeah, exactly. It's not even the company was prospering here to the point where they could engage in major stock yeah. buyback programs. So that means they were making enough money 
to pay everybody yeah, but they and then wanted, increase their own but personal But the stock wealth. price wasn't going up, and that's the most important thing, yeah. is to just make the stock price go up as high as fast as possible. Right. So here we have like a ideology of, I guess, greed. Well, it's even more specific than that. Like I, this I idea know. that companies have to have a return to the shareholder... That didn't occur, that didn't occur till the eighties. People didn't used to believe that. And this idea that, which is obviously literally unsustainable, but this idea of we have to grow, everything has to grow, it has to get bigger, the profits have to get bigger, mm-hmm. the company has to get bigger. You know, it's like yeah. the I think obviously connected to why we have a major uh, environmental crisis yeah. on our hands, but also um, it's this it's that ideology of like more, more, yeah. bigger. You know, and people say it as if it's non-ideological, as yeah. if it's self-apparent and rational. Yeah. But if I saw a graph where somebody put a phrase like that about uh, something about how the company's first re- responsibility is to its shareholders, right. into Google and Graham, it occurs first in the 1980s and then shoots up. Yeah. And before that, nobody had the notion that that's what a company was for. Um, so the idea that it's non-ideological, and I think that is actually the appeal of Hillary. That's why people perceive oh, her as more pragmatic or more able to get things done because they perceive her as not having an ideology. Yeah. Yeah. Like when she was like, I'm not a single issue candidate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't believe in anything was basically <laughs> what it seemed like was yeah. going to come out of her mouth. I don't next. have any issues. You tell me what my issues yeah. are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why people think she's effective. It's it's just her image that she doesn't have an ideology, and that's what makes her serious, and that's what makes her able to get things done somehow. When if, if she has a Republican Congress, they're not going to give her anything. They're not going to give an no, inch worse, to Hillary. Worse, they're going to agree on the worst things, like going yes. to war and trade, trade, and you know, major giveaways to Wall Street yeah. and other huge companies. Yeah. Right? Like I rather the. People are always like, yeah, she's going to get things done. No, I'd much rather have someone who's going to be there and stand in opposition to getting those things yeah. done than just be able to say, oh, government, Congress is, and the president are working well together. They're passing bills. It yeah. mat- Again, this idea that there's no ideology, or that's good. It doesn't matter. It's just neutral. Yeah. No, it matters. It matters what bills they pass. It's not just about getting government working again, and yeah, yeah. it's cool. I want politicians who have values, yeah. right? I'm an atheist liberal, but I want values in government. Yeah, I don't course. know why nobody else does, and I don't think that is uh well, naive i just think that's the that's the only way you can get good things done i think if bernie were president and he compromises it wouldn't be on trade he's opposed to trade it wouldn't be on war he's been talking about non-intervention about the the problems that come from toppling regimes i think maybe he would find compromise with like libertarians and tea partiers yeah. who are opposed to trade who don't want to like rule the world yeah yeah, and you know, going along with that idea of values, I mean, another reason that I like legitimately do not understand voting for Hillary and do understand Bernie is um because to me like it's not just about winning. It matters how we win. Yeah. You know, if winning is done by running racist ads, <laughs> 3 a.m. phone call Hillary, not cute. That's not okay. So if she had won, then would people feel good about that? I don't know. The, is it good to win by scaring senior citizens that Bernie's going to take away, like Obamacare and stuff, 
because and Medicare and Medicaid to make Medicaid for all, you know, like, is that good? Like by lying that you win, is it good to win by mass contributions from all these, you know, corporations that we all agree these contributions are corrupting? Like, is that a good way to win? You know, I think I think it matters how you win. You know, we can't control if we put Bernie in the White House, we can't control what what will happen next. Right. Like how he'll react to things, whether he'll follow through on his promises. I think he will because of the long record we talked about but we can't we have no guarantees as we saw with obama the one thing we do have some control over that we can see right now is like who's running with value with integrity who's you know who's out just to win and who is actually running a campaign that could potentially represent a different idea of how to govern and that's bernie he's always talking about i mean even in his closing remarks he's it's literally that um hashtag you know um us not me or what is it we not i what is it crap it's so catchy i forgot it but anyway the idea that he is all about people power and putting people first like in his closing remarks he was talking about americans and being part of the movement and changing the way things work together not i will do things i'll be the greatest fighter or whatever the hell hillary says it's Uh, she says when i am in the white house right such and such right You know, and it's like this idea that um, that he's running a campaign that actually reflects the values that he preaches is really important because that's all that we can actually, I mean, have some control over as an electorate right now. Like, we don't know what's coming, but right now. Yeah. You know what occurred to me about that is uh, so Hillary obviously has super PACs. I hated when in the debate she was like, most of our donations aren't from super rich people right well yeah but a a significant minority of them are it's massive a significant minority of them are massive donations yeah Yeah. yeah. (laughs) all of bernie's donations max out at the legal limit when the donations to hillary's campaign are unbounded because they come from corporations and whatnot uh she doesn't why does she have a super PAC? She's against Bernie. He doesn't yeah. have a super PAC. Yeah. If if the argument is, well, this is just how politics is done, you're only fighting Bernie now. Yeah. He doesn't have one. Yeah. So and, why do you need and one? And if your values are that you think, you know, yeah. money in politics is bad or that you are going to do something to change yeah. it, start right now. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Exactly. Like, start right now. Yeah. And. I think obviously the answer, by the way, to why that won't be is because she wouldn't have enough actual compared. Then Bernie, then the the math and the conversation would change a hundred percent because now, like especially when it was first starting out in the primary, oh he'll never f- raise enough money. I mean, yep. even I, who like loves him, was yeah. like, yeah, that's probably true, but he's got people power. Yeah. But no, he's raising so much money, and if she stopped taking super PAC money. She it would she her campaign yeah, that's would true. she wouldn't have any yeah money. it would like teeter to a, a whole, I mean it would stop like yeah. <laughs> she couldn't like pay staff yeah and things like that yeah so I yeah I think that I just have a bit more here about not having an ideology that I wanted to get to we'll see if it's uh we've already touched on most of it I don't want to belabor the point but like I think that's really the only argument that everybody is implicitly making for Hillary is that hey. She doesn't, she's not campaigning on values. And that's what we like about her. What do I have here? Yeah, so if Hillary is the more reasonable candidate who can get things done, 
that's only because she doesn't have an ideology, because she doesn't let her values guide her. She's going to come in and just see what incremental things she can make better for people. So then that's her selling point is vote for Hillary because she's not too liberal. Right. <laughs> She's not that progressive. She, That's why we vote for her. But she is a progressive, haven't you heard? But she's one who can get things done. Right. Meaning she doesn't care so much about the outcomes. <laughs> she just wants to get things done. Uh, yeah. So frustrating. You know, I think she would already have a answer prepared for this, but I really want to see someone ask her, why are you running for president? Right. Mm. That's what they asked Ted Kennedy in yeah. 1980, and yeah, it he, sank his campaign because yeah. he didn't have an answer ready. Because yeah. he was like, well, I... I'm a Kennedy. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Ted Kennedy would have been a good candidate. Yeah, you know, actually, but... from everything we've heard about him, he would have been a much better, uh, yeah. much more progressive candidate than uh, Jimmy Carter. Yeah. I think the only answer she and her supporters can give is that Hillary could only give the answer, I'm a smart person. I think I would do a good job. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that is what that is what animates a lot of people. Actually, now that you talk about it, that's not the right. The, okay, but like the Ezra Kleins of the world, yeah. like the pundits, the people who, for whom the world is already working well, the David Plotzes of the world, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Who, uh, you know, like have it good. They have an awesome job that makes them really excited, or at least most days makes them excited, yeah. or. You know, they get to learn something or are interested, whatever, you know, and they get a really good paycheck. They live a comfortable life. They got to start a family exactly when they felt like it. Yeah. They got to buy a house when they wanted to or can afford a new car or whatever the next thing is that they need in their life, you know, and um, they are basically like, yeah, things are Things are working pretty well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we could tweak a few things and, you know, they, things could be a little better. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm a really smart person in a high paying position and I do a really good job. Yeah. So what we need is someone like me who's really smart, you know, Ivy League educated and can go in there and uh, dispassionately yeah. evaluate the situation and tweak those few things that we need yeah, to change, yeah. and then things will be good. Yeah. And I don't have an ideology. No, that's your ideology. Yeah. That's it right <laughs> there. <laughs> uh, I saw a great quote about that. You mentioned Ezra Klein. This just came from uh, some random person on Naked Capitalism. Um, I think it wasn't a comment. It was somebody who talked to the owner, Eves, and uh, told her, in response to this Ezra Klein article, that Klein, Paul Krugman, etc., um, are oblivious the, uh, to the reality of politics because they're wonks who think in policy not politics and they don't recognize that the space for policy is determined by politics mm, and that's wow, that's about that's pragmatism great, yeah yeah as a progressive i am still concerned that union activists black and white circa 1890 died for the right to unionize mm-hmm. i'm yeah. i'm cognizant of that i don't think it's good enough to combat right to work and stop that yeah i think we need to push union activism further and honor that sacrifice well that's another reason to be glad scalia died <laughs> <laughs> there's a big case coming up in front of the supreme court about yeah. unions and union dues and whether you should yeah. be forced to pay union dues and i was yeah. pretty sure they were about to deal a massive blow to unions because yeah, totally. obviously we've got a lot of conservatives and but, pro-corporate. But my perspective, and I know I'm not wrong on this, is that political change takes decades. Yeah. It takes struggle. It takes a lot of work. A lot of people whose names do not get recorded in history yep. need to go out and do the work, agitate, 
advocate for policies. Uh, John Lewis, there's a great article in Jacobin about how John Lewis said of Bernie Sanders, I didn't see him there in the civil rights movement. It's like, okay, did you see everybody in the civil rights movement? You well, met also, everybody? You were in a rare, rarefied circle, yeah. basically. Like, yeah. with Martin Luther King, like, yeah. cool. That's yeah. awesome. Not to take anything away from you, but like, you were basically a famous person in that movement. Yeah. So, of course, you didn't see the little people who are just yeah. there, you know, a college student that came down from Chicago. Yeah, it's like if somebody was like, oh, I was in an indie band in the 90s, and Stephen Malkmus was like, I don't know that person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this, well, this was a movement made up yeah. of hundreds of people, yeah. and Bernie was in SNCC, which is like a big deal. That's a major... Well, or it's like Josh course. Fox from, you know, um, what's it called? Frackland? What's it called? Uh, gas, gas gas land. land yeah. yeah, I'm forgetting everything today that I like. No, <laughs> uh, but it's like if Josh Fox, if I were like, I, I worked on fracking, and <laughs> Josh Fox is like, I didn't see you there. Yeah. First of all, you did because I've met you twice. But I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't remember a random organizer <laughs> yeah, from yeah, a yeah. small, you know. <laughs> yeah, and somebody wrote into Jacobean with an open letter to John Lewis that was like. My grandma was like the best person I knew and she advocated in my local community to integrate the schools and we did it like before the Brownview Board of Education and my dad was like the first, uh, my dad and one other kid were like the first black kids at his school and you know when you say that if you didn't see somebody there then they don't count, that's denigrating the real history of all the activists who dedicated themselves to this cause. And yeah. I just thought that was a really powerful article. But that's how politics really works. And that's why if you want a politician who get, can get things done, well, you need a long view. You need a long-term strategy. You yeah. can't just say, oh, we're going to make small incremental changes. You need someone who has the correct values, who's going to go in there and push to achieve those goals that are far off in the future and make some progress on them. Like Melissa Harris-Perry in her MSNBC commercial. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, my dad wrote... The struggle continues love on daddy. his yeah. love dad on all his letters to me. And I believe that's how politics works. Like you pick up the ball and you like move it down the court a little yeah. bit at a time or whatever. Yeah. And then you leave it for the next generation and the generation yeah. after that. Yeah. And just to say that you're like non-ideological, you're the best person for the job and that's that why might... you should be president. Yeah. <laughs> oh, a total tangent. But that might be the second time we've quoted a Melissa Harris Perry MSNBC <laughs> commercial on here. <laughs> We, she did a good job with the time that she's given. Yeah. She's like dropped little gems in our brains. Well, we watch some illegal internet stream no, of MSNBC when we want to watch it. And they don't play real commercials. They only play MSNBC commercials nonstop. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have to be edited out. It's fine. I'm just joking. It's just a joke. Uh, what else do I have in my notes here? I, I don't know. I think that's like the, the supporters argument for Hillary that they can make besides, well, she's not a woman is just, well, you know, she's not that committed to values. So that's a good thing because she'll get things done. They just don't, they don't say it that way, but that's what they're really saying. Um, and Ezra Klein says like, well, that's just a realistic vision of a democratic presidency. Uh, I don't know. I, I wanted to prepare something about like realism and art for this and how it's like a really specific thing that happened at a particular point in time. And it's just an aesthetic choice. And it's just an attempt like those musicologists I was talking about when I was talking about Scalia to just, uh, it's just a, it's just a choice. And they're like perspective, you know, when Renaissance artists started painting in perspective, it doesn't, it's not real. 
it's still a flat canvas just because they put lines in there to make it look more three-dimensional it doesn't make it realistic it's also a choice at that at at the time in terms of whether we like value that um aesthetic yeah or not right like yeah um because there's like real realism for a while and then there was like a response to that right yeah 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 and it was like oh man fuck that shit that was boring now we're doing Mm -hmm. um you know modern um like uh, impressionism, impressionism began. Impressionism. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think it was really like Impressionism and Manet first, okay. whatever he was doing. Yeah. It was slightly different. And photography was a huge influence. But anyway. Uh, you know what I knew was Impressionism, but then I was worried that I was wrong. So I was like, I'll just pick something more modern than that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's that thing, like claiming. So why did they paint in perspective in the Renaissance, right? Because they were exploring science for the first time. Mm. They were interested in math, Mm. and they worked that into their painting. It wasn't an absence of ideology. They weren't just trying to recreate the world transparently. They were basically trying to do their best to, you know, do photography before photography existed. Yeah, yeah, totally. And then when photography did exist, people moved away from that. Because they were like, well, we could just take photos. Art has to be something more. Yeah. and the people who painted before Renaissance art were like uber religious. Right. So they didn't care about perspective. They just wanted to tell like Bible stories. Yeah. And... Baby Jesus is like a mini man Jesus. And... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they wanted like a lot of gold and things to impress people. Yeah. 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 Uh, so when Hillary or anyone defending Hillary says she's a realist, well, that just means that you've looked at the world in a particular way and have a particular interpretation of it. And you're just having that claim to authority that Scalia and those musicologists yeah. have. You're just telling me that your interpretation is better than mine. Yeah. Right? Yes. I just told you my interpretation that politics is a long struggle. Yeah. And you're just telling me I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think we can. That was great. <laughs> I don't know if there's much more to say. Well, to me, claiming. That's a really good. It's uh, I've been feeling that what you yeah. just said for like a really long time because every time like Ezra Klein or someone tells me yeah. like that I should vote for Hillary I'm like oh no that's just that's how you think yeah. you know and and yeah you just encapsulated that feeling really well so well good job <laughs> to me it goes a little uh, I have a little bit oh okay. I take it to another level okay all right I'm ready for it's not really another mind. level it's just I just think that saying that you have a non-ideology ideology is the most dangerous ideology mm. and i think that's why she referenced kissinger mm-hmm. because everybody respects kissinger right. as a realist a An political statesman yeah a pragmatist yeah. just a smart guy who went in there and made tough decisions yeah or just a guy who did the job that's what i mean yeah, like yeah uh and so and we don't need to judge how he did the job. We just, he did the job. And he has <laughs> no, attained. I disagree. Well, of course. Well, no, no, no. Oh. What I disagree on is what makes him like a realist. His willingness to use the weapons of war. His willingness to right, kill yeah, yeah, yeah. is what makes was what makes him a realist. Yeah, which, if he went in there and said, oh, I'm a realist and I think war is bad. People would be like, you're not a realist. You're not making tough decisions. Yeah, you're but- only tough and serious if you're willing to kill. Yes, although that's absurd because the reason that going to war or killing someone for, you know, besides like, I don't know, like if you're like a psychopath or like some whatever, like 
you know, moment of passion murder or whatever. The reason, though, like, if you're like, I'm going to go and kill this person, that that is like a a serious undertaking. Um, the decision to go to, like, be a soldier and know that you're going to, like, kill people is a serious decision. That's what makes you a serious man is that you've made that decision, is that you are weighing the true consequences of taking a life and how heavy that is and how heavy that should be not just on your heart for lack of a better way of putting it but, but you mean on like your if conscience. you're a knight or something yeah the well the, i think that why why is it that you're considered a, a serious man if you're willing to kill because there's like an underlying assumption that like at least that came with that idea in the past like yeah. knights or you know, maybe, um, maybe you, you know, like in some story where it's like, oh, your sister is being abused by her husband and it's like the Wild West, so you're going to go kill him, right? Okay. That's like a serious, sober decision you're making to kill someone. And the reason that it's serious, it, it comes with the weight on your conscience and the fact that you're going to have to live knowing that you took another, that you've ended another person's life, that you've extinguished the light that God yeah presumably in the more religious times th- put into something. I thought you were going to say like it comes with some risk, like if you're in a duel or a sword fight. No, I mean, in terms of values and morality and what we were talking about earlier, there's like a serious weight to that decision. And you're supposed to weigh it carefully and soberly, again, for lack of a better, you know. Um, and that's what makes you a serious person. So the idea is that when you say like... I am a serious person. I'm willing to go to war. I'm willing to kill. The idea is that you've done that work prior to like, you know what I mean? That you've like done the work. I don't know where you're going with it. I get what you're saying. Oh, well, just that, like that, that's, that's, he uses that, the, the history of that, um, idea, that weight that comes with it to bolster his own seriousness. But he is so flippant about it. And he talks about that. He's just like, Oh, we just have to act. And, and there, and we shape the world by our actions. And he, and we basically need to kill people just so we know that, so that they know we're there. He's like a a pretty serious existentialist. Yeah, You're referencing Greg, Greg Grandin or Greg Gandon, Greg Grandin's book, yeah, Kissinger's so. Shadow. Yeah. We watched a lot of talks with him and planned to buy that book one day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, apparently, Kissinger studied philosophy and wrote a dissertation, sort of like um, existentialism or Nietzsche, but different and applied particularly to politics. Um, instead of it being like will that determines reality, like Nietzsche says, uh, Kissinger simplifies it to action yeah. and says action determines reality. And in the realm of politics, that means, like, for instance, when Carter took office, apparently Kissinger said, like, well, the president has to bomb somewhere. It doesn't matter where, but he has to bomb somewhere, basically to show that America is strong. Right. But so the idea is he's a serious person. He's willing to go to war. But then he he's so it doesn't matter. Bomb yeah. anywhere. Who cares? Yeah. So do you see what I'm saying? It's like people grant him that. um respect that comes with being willing to make such a difficult decision mm-hmm. but he's not doing the work like yeah. he, he it's not a difficult decision for him at all yeah because he has this crazy ideology that again is being the 
whitewashed into oh what no no there's nothing yeah. ideological about yeah, it. Yeah, totally. Like when you're describing knights or olden time people going to war, like they had these ideas about honor. Yeah. And yes, yes, religion part of it. that led them to war. They had values leading yeah. them into war. They didn't necessarily have to think about it because it was clear to them. Apparently in World War One, a lot of the European nations, there were a lot of people in Parliament, like in England, opposed to going to war. And then the people who were in, in right. uh who were pushing for war stood up and said, like, well, you'll be dishonoring our alliances with other other uh nations and there's nothing worse death is not worse than dishonor and they're like oh oh, well they're right i guess we got to go to war yeah because their honor was so important to them back then and i i get i think i get what you're saying it's like kissinger and hillary and just everybody in politics these days because people think they're non-ideological um we grant them that seriousness because they are making tough decisions when really they're not driven by any value judgments. But on the other hand, if you can't truly be... It's actually a tough decision for them. Yeah, yeah, it's not... They're not taking it seriously. They're not thinking like... And they're at no risk. Yeah, and... And uh, whereas those olden time people were doing it based on values, at least, even if they were misguided, um, nowadays we do it out of pragmatism, meaning we think it's good for us to go to war. Yeah, We think we'll we'll make America stronger and that'll be good for us. Yeah, or what we talked about with Top Chef um, and when we were, and I was like, I don't know, Top Chef makes me think about death tolls or whatever in the Middle East. It's like this idea of, oh, well, we'll do it out of pragmatism. You know, maybe we'll, you know, 500,000 children will die, Madeleine Albright, but we'll bring democracy to the region, you know, and therefore it's worth it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Madeline Albright. Well, tell me what you think about this, because normally I don't like when you enumerate something, but I was thinking that, uh, so if if you can, if you uh, can't truly be non-ideological because you always have to interpret the world, right? It's not just apparent and that you don't read it, right? You You always have to make your own interpretation. So to do that, we look to the past and the present and we speculate about what happened and why it happened. And then we try to map that inherently flawed understanding onto the future. So we all, all we have are our opinions, our arguments for why those things happened, and our values or our ethics. So to say that your non-ideological says, I don't care about the values or ethics. I'm only going to look at my rationality for why things happened in the past, and I'm not going to let myself be constrained by values or ethics. And to me, that is why like saying you're non-ideological, you're a realist, uh, realpolitik is like the most dangerous ideology. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. <laughs> I I think there must be something wrong with it because it seems like too. I don't like making lists like that. It seems to me inherently flawed. But I think when you're saying that you're non-ideological, you know, the first function is to say, "Oh, I'm smart. I know what I'm doing. Listen to me." And the second function is to say, uh, "Values don't matter. Ethics don't matter." Yeah. Yeah, and that's why you should vote for Bernie. Yeah. Honestly, the foreign policy stuff is the main reason I don't want to vote for Hillary. I know, I know. The more I hear about Obama, the more I'm actually kind of proud of his foreign policy decisions. Not Minus droning. droning yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not assassinating Americans. Yeah. But like, if you watch uh, Frontline about Netanyahu or Syria, like, everybody's pushing for him to get involved. Yeah. And he just, through some resolve of his own, seems to want to keep America Out not of... too embroiled in these yeah. conflicts. Like. But as out of it as we can be. Yeah. Um, It makes me feel a little bit better about him 
as president on foreign policy, the more I learn. And I think Hillary would probably go the opposite direction. Oh, for sure. And in fact, in those documentaries, it's often like, he was advised by many people, <laughs> it's like, parentheses Hillary, yeah. <laughs> to go into Syria, to not deal with Iran, to, you know, yeah. if, you know, in the um, Netanyahu uh, documentary that we watched on Frontline, it was like Netanyahu wanted assurance that if he attacked, um, was it Iran? That we would go in. Yeah, and, I think it was. Yeah, it was like that we would go in and support him. And Obama was like, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, you need to be a serious ally of Israel. And it's like, uh, no, he needs to be the American president, which yeah. thanks good, thank goodness is his like, apparently for, he, ag he agrees. That's his yeah. first goal because Jesus. <laughs> like, Do you remember the part where it was like Obama just got inaugurated and then he flew to Egypt, Jordan, oh, yeah. and Saudi Arabia? Yeah. And in Israel, Netanyahu and the conservatives were like, Psh, what a snub. He didn't come visit us. Yeah. And then Netanyahu went to meet with the president in America in front of press and just lectured him for like 15 or 20 yeah. minutes in front of all the press. Yeah. What a big fucking baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you didn't come to see me. Uh, I'm not friends with you anymore. Yeah. And yeah. now I'm going to retaliate. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, let's not get too uh, too off topic here. So I think we can wrap it up there. Yeah. Um, every time we try to have a discussion about Hillary and Bernie, I want it to be like really disciplined and like point by point discussion, but then it always goes all over the place. But I yeah. think that's just because we have so many reasons why we <laughs> dislike Hillary and really love Bernie that it's hard to yeah. be to to keep the conversation tight. Yeah, I like all over the place discussions <laughs> anyway. So okay, the only well, bad point is we couldn't work in reality TV to this discussion. Yeah, or cartoons or something. Yeah. Um. Okay, but with that, we will take our second break, and then we'll be back. Okay. So uh, I thought we could go through some of the TV shows that Adam and I have been watching and trying out and just kind of talk about what we think of it, tell you guys a little bit about it, and tell you whether or not we recommend you check it out. We could talk about these two together, probably. Okay. So uh, there's Colony, which is from one of the Lost producers, I guess. It's about like an occupied zone in Los Angeles in the, you know, the present day alternative future sort of situation. And uh, the Shannara Shannara Chronicles. I feel like we can lump them together since they're both kind of sci-fi worlds. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's MTV's, you know, fantasy world TV show based on some books from the '80s or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's like they're like maybe we'll do some uh, hot young people like adventuring through a basically Middle Earth realm as opposed yeah. to like a lot of the sister fucking that's going on mm -hmm. in Game of Thrones. Yeah. I've seen it billed as like MTV's Game of Thrones for young yeah. people. Yeah. yeah. I think the colors are a lot brighter too. So yeah. that's nice. Well, should we start with that one? Do we okay. have anything interesting to say about it or just how good or bad it is? I'm not sure. I haven't really thought too much about it on like a deeper level, but it's pretty good. It's entertaining. Yeah. I it's mean, I would say that if you're like into fantasy or whatever, you might want to check it out. I think overall, it fell a little flat for yeah. me. It seems kind of shallow. Yeah. It seemed like in terms of like the actual story, I felt like there wasn't quite enough depth for me to be interested. I don't know. The basic premise is that the this is a world that's taking place many years after our world, but it's still on planet Earth humans completely destroyed themselves and the earth 
and then some sort of mutant humans, well, mutant humans and demons existed, and the mutant humans sort of band together to fight against the demons, and they kind of like captured them in like some other realm, and there's like a giant tree, and as long as the tree is safe, then the demons stay in the other realm, but of course, it's the day everything changed during the pilot. The mutant humans are what make the elves and dwarves, or gnomes they call them, and then there's a group of just like human humans, rovers, or like gypsy people. Yeah. So it's kind of one of those super rationalistic scientific explanations for how we create a fantasy world in the future after ecological disaster people mutate into elves and gnomes and stuff like that yeah and they yeah yeah and they don't have any technology anymore but they and they didn't think they had magic but of course you know we're discovering some people do have magic and and so the elves are in charge there's an elven princess she's also i guess we're supposed to see her as like a badass or whatever because she breaks the rules and yeah. does some kind of gauntlet challenge. Yeah, that some challenge. To become like a keeper of the tree. The chosen. Yeah. They call it, of course, they call it the chosen. Yeah, yeah. And she's the last of the chosen because they all get murdered. Yeah. And she's, yeah, a woman who does it. And you're not supposed to do it as a woman, but there's no rule. So she's like, I'm going to go do it. And oh, I, I, I did it. Yeah. I'm one of the chosen. Yeah, and then we have a half-elf, half-druid boy who doesn't know that he's, like, super special, but guess what? He is. And uh, his dad went crazy because he was actually a hero of the war, but he doesn't know about that. And now he's, like, trying to fight that destiny because he's worried that he's going to become crazy. And there's, like, a magic user who shows up frozen from the past. Yeah. I thought of something. Druid as well. Yeah, I thought of two things interesting. One is, like, this level of CGI in this show. It's kind of low budge. Yeah, I noticed that, too. But it it basically works. They do really good with the backgrounds and the settings. It seems pretty real. The, The second interesting thing, though, was on one of the more recent episodes. So there's a tree that all the demons are kind of trapped in. And every time a leaf falls off the tree, a demon escapes. And the tree is like what keeps everybody safe. And that's what the chosen do is they protect the tree. So this girl, the main elf girl has to go into the tree in some sort of like vision quest. And the tree tests if she's strong enough to go on this quest to save the world. Yeah, Yeah, this is probably the most interesting thing like on a deeper level that happens. Inside of it, she sees like a vision of an old boyfriend that she fights and uh he was one of the chosen who died and then also of the half elf boy who they've oh you know they've got a little will they won't they going on like he accidentally sees her naked and stuff of course and oh and of course she was bathing and then he looks away and all of a sudden she's like got him in a headlock with a knife to his throat and it's like oh who are you you know when they that's how they first met yeah yeah but anyway she's in the tree so she's in the tree on her vision quest and like a a dark clad version of him appears wearing all black yeah. you know <laughs> leather and stuff and in like the tree's voice or whatever is like uh you have to fight me and kill me and it's like oh don't the tree is basically telling her like don't let your love hold you back like yeah, you have to be tough like, and kill this kill this boy even though he looks like this person boy. you're like f- 
starting to fall in love with or whatever. Yeah, I thought that would, that's I think where that's what I was saying kind of fell flat for me because I think if it was like a Harry Potter book or something like that, there would have been a challenge like where, you know, maybe like Harry's has to kill her, you know, Hermione or Ron. But then he would have been like, no, I can't do that. I'd rather die than kill my friends or something. And then it would have been like, good job, challenge passed. You yeah. did the right thing. You stayed true to yourself and your friends. Yeah. But instead, the story, the yeah. tree here is like, kill him. And then she does kill him. And then the tree's like, good. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah. It's like, wait, what? And the lesson is like, don't get love, don't, yeah, don't let like yeah. love or emotions get in the way of your quest. And it's yeah, like, that's, that's true. He wasn't. That's like a weird, like capitalist message. Yeah, I don't yeah. Know. The tree wasn't just talking about love. It was like your friendships can't get in the way. You have to do whatever it takes to succeed. Yeah. yeah. It was like you might. Yeah. It's like you're gonna have to like push people down to get to the top. You know. Yeah. Like I was like, Jesus, what? Like I can tell this book was written in the eighties. Like yeah. is good. I like the idea that you can um, analyze narratives like this through sort of dream logic like wish fulfillment and here i think that is like a capitalist allegory through sort of wish fulfillment like you have to do whatever it takes to succeed yeah even if you have to cut down your friends and loved ones to do it you know that's your righteous quest yeah that is and good, that will right? yeah. that's what will save the world too yeah. yeah and restore it to like its former glory yeah so i mean in terms of like a show it, i think it's paced pretty well it, it you know, we watched like four episodes pretty quickly. So it's if you're like interested in elves and gnomes and maybe you want a less dark yeah. alternative to Game of Thrones, then this might be a show to check out. But otherwise, hmm. it was a lot better than I expected, though. And I would rather watch something that's kind of light and crappy and low budge than something that's like super dark and serious and prestige. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Which takes us to Colony. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think Colony is definitely trying to be super dark and prestige and highly produced. The yeah. acting is so terrible. Yeah. I well, think it's suppo- I think you're supposed to be like, oh, they're good actors, but they're so terrible. I know. The man on the show, the main character man, we are so terrible with character names. We should start writing this shit down. It's not important. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm like the main character man. Long hair guy. Yeah. Long hair dad guy. His, like... The only way he expresses emotions, which I think are all the same emotion, is a grunt. Yeah. I mean, all he does is grunt through every scene. And, and we're he so- talks like this because he's got so much emotion. Because he's grunting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's just like so hard to take him seriously or even be slightly moved by what yeah. he's saying. And then on the flip side, the female protagonist, the white, his wife, is like just just really flat and dull yeah, as sure, well sure. like she yeah. doesn't shine or like help balance him out at all or anything so i don't know the acting's no good but the story was and the way the characters act doesn't make a lot of sense all the time i know or how about that sex scene what wasn't there a terrible terrible sex scene? <laughs> well it was just i think it was terrible in the way that all sex scenes on tv are terrible which is first of all you have to like if there, if there's, I think it was a Slavoj Žižek documentary we watched that really highlighted this for me. But he was talking about how like you can have porn and you can show explicit sex, right? Yeah. Or you can have stories and you have to show like a really muted, tamed down version of sex. Yeah. But what we can't do is have like a real meaningful emotional yeah. story and show real sex basically yeah. so like he was kind of arguing i think in the present day you can have pornography or you can have art 
but you can't truly have erotic art. It yeah. doesn't seem to exist in our society. Yeah. That successful blending of the erotic with the artistic. Yeah. It has to be one or the other. And I certainly wasn't expecting Colony or the producers yeah. of Lost to like be the ones to change yeah. that. But like but, erotic art on ABC at I 9 p.m. I hate how on TV when people have sex, it is zero to 60 and they're yeah. done. Yeah. Like <laughs> it, it, she like doesn't even take off her bra. I know why, obviously. We can't show her boobies. But like there's no foreplay. I mean, okay, they don't even make out, if I remember correctly. She just kind of jumps on him, and then they're fucking. Like, Didn't they start by fighting? Wasn't yeah. it one of those? Yeah, 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 of course. They start by fighting, and they end by fighting, but they fuck in between. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's emotional, and you know, that's what being a married couple is. You, you fight, but you love each other, and you fuck when one of you thinks the other one might have died. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, yeah, that's what it was. So if we can go through the story real quick there, just to yeah, help yeah. you out. So he... They live in Los Angeles. It looks like they're going about a normal day, except they're weirdly emotional about everything. And then it's like, oh, they're weirdly emotional about everything because they live in like an occupied territory yeah. and the military controls everything. And, there's, and we like, see some slight signs of that early on. Like we see barbed wire in the suburban neighborhood. Uh, in the backyard. And like yeah. yeah. But everything still mostly looks normal. So you're like, what's going on? Yeah. You know? And the long haired dad works at a mechanics shop and. He's going to do a, a delivery. Of like batteries or something. Yeah, they did a pretty good job with this bit, not telling you what's happening right away. Then it turns out, oh, he's not doing a delivery. He's sneaking into... Um, like a different zoned yeah. off territory colony. Thing. Into Los Angeles, I think. In, from Los Angeles into, I think, Santa Barbara. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you have to like go through checkpoints and stuff. So he has like a coyote, basically, yeah. who is going to help him smuggle in named Spider. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> like a cool kid, like, you know, kind of a... Uh, well, he was ugly, and everyone on this show is pretty, so we knew right away he's oh, going to die early nice. on. Nice. <laughs> and that he was going to be, you know, kind of on the fringes yeah. of society and stuff. Yeah. So anyway, he's trying to sneak into Santa Barbara, and it goes bad. And that's uh, that's why his wife thought he died. And, and he was trying to sneak into Santa Barbara because... I think they call oh, it like yeah. the event or something like that. Um, but whenever like the event happened, he blames himself for not holding on to his son tight enough. And as a result, he, his wife and two of their three kids live together in, in Los Angeles. And then I guess this like 12 year old boy has been separated from them and yeah. lives in Santa Barbara. And so he's trying to get into Santa Barbara to get his son yeah. back. Why do you always have to blame yourself for something that's not your fault if you're the heroic character in one of these things? Because you've got to have a reason to grunt and be all brooding. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> yeah. So then he appears again, like the police bring him home after interrogating him and forcing him to work for them because you find out, oh, he used secretly, he was like a an ex- Bray or something. Yeah. It's not even just that he was ex-military. It was like, he's like top notch. Yeah, like. he was the best manhunter in says, Afghanistan. Yeah, he's, yeah, yeah, exactly. He's like, I'm good at finding people. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so then, you know, the muck, muckety muck Jewish like rich guy who's collaborating with yeah, he's the sort of like, probably alien invaders. Yeah, yeah. He's sort of like, so he, okay, so the dad, um, there's like an explosion. Things go bad when he's trying to sneak into Santa Barbara. Mm. He gets arrested. He has changed his name in an effort to uh, stay safe because he doesn't want yeah. the colony. Yeah, 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 okay. Yeah. We don't have to Anyway, whatever. They, they find him, though. They're looking for him under a different name. They figure out that that's who he is. They find him. They take him to a fancy schmancy party where there is a uh what what who is essentially sort of the mayor of this little uh occupied colony 
And I was saying to Adam, like, it's a little uncomfortable that this is clearly a, like a Jewish man. And all he's yeah. talking about is like being motivated by like having access to money yeah. and fine things. And like, yeah, it's, so it's very weird. like, yeah, it made me, I don't, maybe yeah, it, it wasn't intentional, but I was like, oh, I don't know about this. And so he is clearly in touch with what appears to be alien overlords. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're at the party. They like, are on some kind of like some kind of penthouse or I don't know, a big balcony type situation. And then they look out across, I guess like Los Angeles and there is like, it's hard to even tell what's happening, but basically there's like a lot of flashing lights and Mm -hmm. something beaming down flashing lights to earth. And Uh, I guess it beams up into the sky. Oh, is that what it was? Okay. So it's, everybody's like, Ooh, yeah. And I guess it sounded like they were saying it happens like nightly or pretty regularly. So it seems like they're probably occupied by aliens and these aliens are controlling everything. And that guy, the mayor guy, talks about how he says like, oh, well, once they have what they need, they'll be like satiated and they'll go home. And it's like pretty clear that that's obviously not going to happen. And then, oh. Well, and then they take the dad home. Yeah. And then they fight and have sex. Yeah. And then they fight. Yeah. And in the meantime, we see the mom doing things like trying to get insulin for her friend's kid. And because um, they've decided that some things aren't worth that part was treating. wait that part was boring and that part didn't matter did it did we learn anything or gain like, anything well, from the, that? what we learned we keep hearing these little things like they've decided uh, like that like oh some like this disease isn't worth treating basically like well just let all the diabetics die like we don't fucking give a shit about sick people you know like so I think that was like the whole point of that yeah. and then um, at the party or the next day or something, the mayor says, like, uh, I've convinced them that there is some value to recreational pursuits or whatever. So I, I think we're supposed to get a sense that these are, like, extremely, like, hyper-rationalist, practical aliens, like, you know, Spock style. And they don't understand, like, human things like having fun or caring about sick people. So. I think that's what those scenes were meant to tell us. Yeah. And then after they have sex, he's basically telling her that he has to collaborate and she gets all pissed because he's like, well, if I don't, you know, the rich Jew told him, if you don't work for us, then basically like, we'll kill your family or something like that. And he's telling his wife that, well, I'm going to have to work for them now. And she gets all pissed. Yeah. That was so stupid. He has to. You can't not. He doesn't have a choice. Yeah, yeah. But she says, if you do that, you're putting a target on our backs because the resistance, you know, the people trying to fight against this. They, if you're like not resisting, then they see you as a collaborator. Oh, and then what was really stupid was the next morning, like an entire contingent of police and the rich Jew are there to make him breakfast to show like, oh, we'll give you all these perks like Like bacon and coffee. Don't you want to work for us? It's like you just showed up at this guy. First of all, you drop this guy off with flashing lights. So they know he was already taken by the police and returned, which is weird. And then the police are there in the morning cooking him breakfast. (laughs) They know that he's collaborating with you now. Yeah, yeah, there's no question. (laughs) But his job is basically to like infiltrate the resistance because they're getting too strong and da da da, you know. And he's supposed to find out who the leader is. And then right after they cook him breakfast and shit and leave, we see the wife go off. She goes to a house where she says that she's, hi, grandma, I'm here for breakfast. And then the grandma starts like swaying the wind chat or 
whatever gets the wind chimes going yeah. and then <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> takes her like obviously like she's signaling guess what not here just for breakfast <laughs> and uh then she they go through a house and into a shed and behind the shed in the garden i don't know there's a whole thing and then the wife shows up and she says something about how you've got someone on the inside now and they're like what are you talking about and she's like they just hired my husband to infiltrate yeah. us yeah. oh twist she is the resistance obviously no one's surprised i don't think yeah. anyone was surprised by that yeah but. so ultimately it was an entertaining show we'll probably watch it again but really no better than the shannara chronicles yeah. even though it's got more budget and a yeah. bunch of hype yeah and you're supposed to look at it and think like oh this is well made they're acting well there's great cgi yeah uh, and it's by the producer of lost so it must be good it's really no better than that low budge MTV. No, honestly, the it's full of cliches. Yeah, characters yeah. that do it. everything that happens is extremely expected in yeah. both shows. Yeah. Nothing surprising ultimately happens, except that this show is like anti-Semitic. Also, apparently, <laughs> that, yeah, that was surprising. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, no, the only thing that I found interesting about this show, or I found it interesting in the same way that like watching Mad Max was kind of interesting, like Fury Road. It's like obviously. A uh, reflection of some of our fears and worries right now. Like everything's a police state. Everything's very controlled. He's like a white person who needs like a coyote to smuggle him across to a different, yeah. you know, section or whatever. And there's like a lot of surveillance and things like that. Yeah. So people don't feel like they have any freedom and everything yeah. you do is heard, seen, whatever. Yeah. And you have to like really try to kind of keep your head down. Yeah, and, that's true. And it's also like they're bringing our war on terror home to us to yeah. see what that would be like. Yeah. That's enough reason for me to watch it alone, yeah. no matter what else, that no was, matter how yeah, shitty everything else is. That was the part I is. found most interesting. It's sort of like an expression of something that we worry about, but don't talk about. And I guess to the extent that it's like art, you know, yeah. this is like art showing us a potential nightmare future, which yeah. is always kind of interesting to see. A potential nightmare future, but stemming from our current modern nightmares yeah. right now. Um, and we've been listening to the new serial about Bo Bergdahl. In this episode, they were just talking about how people who are keeping him captive were so fixated on Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib and the prisons that they either had, some of them had gone through and others had just heard about. Yeah. You know, it's true that the things we do do come home to roost. And uh, I don't think people realize that or accept it. Yeah, well, I mean, even why do we, why did, like, after the Boston Marathon, did Boston look like, like, yeah. colony? It looked like a fucking yeah, police state with, like, tanks rolling through and officers that are in all black and look like fucking future Nazis. I mean, you know, it came home to roost. Like, the police departments also got, you know, 9-11 terror toys so uh yeah that's definitely true yeah but it doesn't look like colony is gonna explore that in a way that would be satisfying to me maybe there won't be aliens that would be good that would be a good twist just to yeah. have aliens i don't know kind of negates any potential social commentary there i feel like yeah i also think it's up to you what you get out of it that's you know true. this is what i got out of it and why i'm interested in like at least checking it out a little bit further yeah. and to some extent it's like we say all the time i don't think the artist's intention really matters that much that's especially true. in this case you know like yeah. you know maybe they're interested in exploring an alien story but in the process if they do a good job depicting our like i say our our modern nightmares then maybe that's worth it enough to watch it or maybe i'm yeah. putting too much faith in it and it'll turn out to be a totally shit show like lost you know <laughs> good pilot terrible show we'll see <laughs> todd margaret is back and it's great yeah yeah 
Yeah, I thought we should talk about that for a minute. I was really pleasantly surprised to see that Todd Margaret made it back for another season. It's really interesting how they framed it. I really, really like how he... um, Because at the end of the of season two i guess we should have said spoilers in here somewhere whatever maybe we can go back to the beginning yeah, and we've remind been, people. i don't know we've been okay with not giving too many spoilers we've said everything that happens up to the end of maybe. the episodes <laughs> maybe. <laughs> anyway uh whatever so maybe we'll put it in like the description or something but Todd- apparently it's scientifically proven that you enjoy it more if you know what's going to happen That's true. so that's yeah, true. we're just so we're doing not people a favor. Ruining anything for you? We're making yeah. it better. Um, so Todd Margaret at the end of uh, season two destroys the world. Yeah, and so I actually read a an interview with. Uh, uh, David Cross where he said like people would be like hey man when's Todd Margaret coming back and he was like how could it like <laughs> but he found a way to make it uh, come back so it, it turns out that everything that happened it was all a dream and, <laughs> no I mean I like that they use such a yeah. boring trope premise but they do a really good job like really exploring it and having fun with it and so actually he's not this bald loser Todd Margaret you know he has like hair and he has a girlfriend and he's like a not like a bumbling buffoon he's actually like a high-powered like executive yeah the way you put it when we were watching was that he is the capable asshole that he pretends to be yeah exactly (laughs) exactly and so we essentially get to watch a slightly different alternate version of Todd Margaret who yeah like who is capable Mm -hmm. we get to see like his life fall apart in a completely different but also very similar way so it's it's kind of cool because in the first two seasons you kind of stem uh, everything stems from his incompetence and efforts to to like lie and pretend to be something he isn't and stuff like that and here he like is those things and yet everything's still like falling apart for him and like very quickly unraveling and so it's just so cool to see it happen again but in like a slightly different way it, i don't know it would i guess it sounds kind of boring when i say it but hopefully you no, it's really, aren't i don't know that. it's really good and yeah. he runs into the same characters again but in slightly different context yeah. like he sees alice and she's still running a restaurant but it's like a gastro pub so what it, she like uses science to create yeah you know tiny concoctions reductions of like a cheeseburger into a test tube yeah. and you drink the test tube and yeah yeah, yeah and her character's slightly different and and the guy from in betweeners who kind of like really ruins his life in the dream version now is like the uh, energy drink company's son actually and he's like doing all this stuff and trying to be helpful and I don't know. It's just really interesting. I and I would just really recommend watching it, especially if you enjoyed the first two seasons. Yeah. Um or if you haven't seen those, watch those and then watch this. Oh, and you know who's in this one now is the weird neighbor from Friday Night Dinner. Oh yeah. 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 He plays um like the CEO of the company that Todd Margaret works at. This show is such a good bridge like to or between America and the weird British comedy shows that we like. Yeah, yeah. And it has so many of the actors from the weird British comedy shows that we like. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then the last show that I really wanted to talk about is an Australian show that Adam and I are like obsessed with um, called, where I am anyway. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, <laughs> called Please Like Me. It's a show created by a guy that's like our age. I think he's like 27 or 28. Yeah. And his name is Josh Thomas. And he and his friend Thomas or Tom uh, created this show and they act and star in the show. And um, Adam and I always say that it it's the show that the praise for girls should be like directed towards in other words like people are always like oh girls it's such a modern show about millennials da, da, da. Like, and it's like yeah maybe but like I don't know I'm a millennial and I can't afford to live in New yeah. York City after college and like have adventures Yeah, it's also just an update of Sex and the City yeah like, yeah people always say that it's not but it really it really seems like it is yeah. I don't know we only watched season one and then we couldn't keep going we kind of we kind of liked season one and then we started watching season two and just dropped off yeah maybe we'll catch back up with it just since it's something you're supposed to watch and enjoy <laughs> maybe. maybe anyway here's a show that we do actually enjoy watching about millennials it's so good josh is the main character he uh has like a crazy family basically his mom is uh bipolar i think and has like tried to commit suicide his dad is like having a midlife crisis and has like married uh it, i don't know what is she like Vietnamese? I don't know. Yeah, something. Some forget. kind of uh, Asian. <laughs> younger. Yeah, younger. Yeah, obviously younger uh, woman. You know, his friends. Oh, he's like uh, dating a girl who, but not, like not at first willing to admit that he's gay. And then later has like to come to terms with that and um, start dating guys. And his friend, like Tom, is like just totally crazy. Well, like, he's, like, actually, he's really chill, but he's, like, totally buffoonish. Like, he just mm. falls into situations and things, like, very easily. And it's, like, very easily sort of pushed, I would say, you know? I feel like you disagree with me. I don't know. I just don't feel like you're capturing the show or what, what it is or what makes it good. But what makes it good well, isn't really the starts. plot, yeah. you know? I'm just giving, like, a... Okay, go ahead. Well, it's like genuinely funny and genuinely real. Yeah. You know, like last episode we were talking about abortion on TV. They actually had one in one of the recent episodes that was, was handled really, really well. Yeah. Um, there's a third character, Claire, who was Josh, the, the character Josh's high school girlfriend before he came out as gay. And she's still friends with Josh and Tom and they, they live together through some of the seasons. And in this third season, they're living together and she goes to get an abortion and Josh comes with her. And it was just handled extremely realistically and humorously. And the show's just so good. They're so skilled at writing. Yeah, I think what is really good about this show is that they're able to set up like wacky scenarios sometimes and obviously not getting an abortion specifically, but in general, like they'll have like kind of wacky situations happen and yet the characters themselves aren't cartoonish and wacky. They're very real and sensitive and funny and emotional. You know, it's like, like they're like full human yeah. like it's, beings. It's not a zany situation style sitcom. No, no. Situation comedy style sitcom. I know that's what sitcom means, but yeah. the, it's one of the sitcoms where the comedy arises from the dialogue, the characters themselves. Like, well, so the abortion episode, the way it ends, this is about as zany as it gets. I think it's th- that episode that ends this way. Tom has been building a little miniature cardboard city oh, yeah. in one of the rooms of their house. Yeah. And he says, like, is it time for, I forget how he puts it. He's like, you've had a shitty day. I've had a shitty day, whatever. Like, I think it's time to, like, 
destroy this thing basically yeah i forget how he puts it and then he dresses his dog up in like a little godzilla outfit and starts videotaping and he puts the dog down and he's ready for the dog to destroy the cardboard city he put treats in all the buildings and the dog just like sniffs and walks around and leaves yeah (laughs) yeah so then claire who just had the abortion gets in a big godzilla costume and smashes the town and you know the last few minutes of the episode are just like looking up at her crushing the town yeah 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 and so at the same time while you have that kind of like funny twee ending you also have like a really like realistic portrayal of you know like they go to the Planned Parenthood or whatever the abortion clinic is there there's like three protesters they get the pills that they need she they talk about the process of taking one pill there taking the other ones later of like sitting on the toilet and waiting for it to happen like there's and it's treated with like so much like care and sensitivity and yet the whole time it's like so funny like um after (laughs) the abort like she like goes through and she's like oh my god that was like really painful and stuff and then she's like uh do you think I should take a picture of this and then show it to people when they show me pictures (laughs) of their kids (laughs) like so there's like a lot of uh it's like it's just so well-rounded and balanced you know I don't know. I just love that show so much. Yeah. It's hard to and talk in, about. In terms of storytelling, it's really good. Like, there's no real climax to the abortion. Like, there's no yeah. solid resolution where it's like, oh, I feel fine or I feel good or this is what I think about abortion or but, women's right. But they do do a good job of sort of processing it in the sense that mm-hmm. he makes her fried chicken and they eat it in the bed and he's like, okay, let's talk about some of the weird thoughts we've had today. Yeah. And then he's like, I got weirdly jealous of the fact that you can have... a pregnancy you know Mm -hmm. and she says something that i thought was really sweet where she says you know i thought my politics would protect me from feeling bad basically about this like and they talk about how for a second it would they thought oh it would be kind of cool to keep it and like how they'd buy it little outfits and stuff and so there's just a lot of it's like i don't know it's just like how you imagine you might really have those feelings and maybe that conversation with someone you're close with yeah And I appreciate from like a storytelling point of view that that is kind of the only that's like the climax of the abortion, not really when she's sitting on the toilet. Yeah. And he's Josh is like outside the door talking to her, cracking some jokes and just listening to her. And it's like two like real resolutions to the abortion, just how they're sitting around eating fried chicken in bed, talking about that. And then when she's dressed in a Godzilla outfit, smashing this cardboard city. Yeah. And I don't know, that's such a great way to deal with the issue. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that it's not totally resolved. It's just a thing that happens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's also why we were saying, like, it's just, it feels really true to life in a lot of ways. Um, The people who created the show, like Josh and Tom, are friends in real life. Like, I was on their Instagram accounts recently, and it was, like, so cool to see, like, oh, yeah, they, like, hang out and, you know, dress up for Halloween together and stuff like that. and. So I think that really translates into the show. And the other thing is, like, I can't believe he's so young and has been able to have such creative control. It's pretty clear over the show. And as a result, it just feels more like, I don't know, a millennial show, I guess, than anything else I've ever seen. Like, it just... It's so clear that it's not adults trying to... Like, I know we're all adults now, but you know what I mean? Like, that it's not older people older than millennials trying to make a show to appeal to millennials. Mm -hmm. But it's actually a show like 
by millennials for millennials, I guess, you know? Yeah. It's just really good. Yeah. I would, and the craft of the show is so good. Yeah. And, and the comedy, the way they speak to each other, everything is so funny. Like his voicemail, his voicemail yeah. is like, hi, this is Josh. I don't have time for you right now. Like, I, I don't have time. Like, you know, it's like, I, I forget exactly how it goes. It's like, it. I'm Josh. I'm busy. I don't have time for you. Yeah. yeah. And then it beeps and you have yeah. to leave a message. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, I don't know. There's just like a really good rhythm to the show that huh, it's like well paced, but it's not in a hurry. It's not trying to be flashy. It's like, it's not too light and it's not too dark yeah, either. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it, oh, they deal with some dark topics. They yeah, deal like with his, mental health issues. Yeah, a lot. They dealt with abortion. They deal with like family problems, especially um, like his his boyfriend having trouble coming out as gay to his family. That was really cool, actually. This season that happens, yeah. and he has like this dumb bro brother yeah. who is the basically the most supportive. Yeah. He's just like obviously. Yeah, when yeah, he says yeah. He's gay. yeah. He's like, guys, I have to tell you something. I'm gay, and his brother is like duh you know yeah. like obviously but he like yeah his and the mom's supportive and the dad like can't handle it yeah but tries to be supportive in a way but just makes it worse yeah 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 it's just a really good I, show i, don't I know. feel like it's kind of like if you took some of the best parts of girls and actually if you mixed it with some of the best parts of broad city mm, yeah. yeah yeah like it's not a straight comedy show the way broad city is no. but broad city is also really inventive in terms of form and storytelling yeah. i think even more so than girls girls is a little oh, more yeah. conventional although it is you know it's a bit it pushes some boundaries like the end of the first season has like no conclusion at all she just takes the bus and goes to the beach and like sleeps there yeah it's, it's like stuff like that happens in this show and uh it's like kind of combining it with like one of those old dramedies like push like dead like me or pushing daisies what's what's the one where they have a funeral home i don't think you've seen it but one of those dramedies like that or weeds but not so like dark and stuffy yeah 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 uh, yeah that's what i love about that sh this show is like you would expect it to be dark based on some of the things they cover and yet it's like always so funny yeah so that's a show that we just really wanted to recommend we just kind of like watched all of season three recently please like me yeah that's what it's called <laughs> yeah just look it up on your favorite internet illegal streaming site because it's australian <laughs> so that's your only option I think I saw that it said that they play it somewhere in the U.S. Let me look it up real quick. Well, we we did see him on a on Instagram on like a float at Miami Gay Pride, so maybe yeah, so some people know about it. Um, maybe sometime we'll do a list of a bunch of good Australian and New Zealander shows sometime soon. There's quite a few good ones over there. Well, you can you can buy it on Amazon if you want to go the whole like legal route or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think if you have cable, you can watch it. Fridays at 10.30 p.m. Eastern on Pivot. Or Is that a also, channel? I, I think so. Or also, it's on iTunes. So Yeah, or, you know, you can reach out to us and maybe we'll help you find it. Help you do a Google search or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, because, like, we are, we, we are willing to get hands-on to help you watch <laughs> this show. That's how much we love it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I think that concludes our list of TV shows. That Did you we... want to say something about how bad Supergirl was? I oh, haven't yeah, watched it, yeah. so I'd be interested to listen. Yeah, the only other show that's like kind of new that we've been checking out and watching, or that I have anyway, is called Supergirl. And I, I started it around the same time that I started Jessica Jones. But unlike Jessica Jones, which we like binge watched right away because it was really good, Supergirl, we just, I like stopped watching. And then I went back to 
mainly for this podcast, I felt like maybe it'd be interesting to do something where we compare Supergirl and Jessica Jones or something like that, since they're two female comic books. I don't think we talked shows. about Jessica Jones on here, did we? I don't we could. Know. It's probably a bit passe now, but yeah. I, yeah, I think Let's we could sometimes. Let's not get into it now. There's a lot to say. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so I've kept watching it and. It's like the only show out of all of these shows that I would strongly recommend you do not watch. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so bad. The stories are bad. The graphics are bad. It's like sexist, even though it's trying not to be. (laughs) It like objectifies Supergirl and then calls itself out for objectifying her as if that will therefore mean it hasn't objectified her. Oh, I hate that sort of thing so much. Yeah. And they, like, talk about, like, being, like, feminist and pro-woman, but then it's not. It's just, it's a mess. So if you were thinking, like, hey, I enjoyed Jessica Jones, maybe, and, and I'm a lady that doesn't normally get into comic book remakes, like like me. Like, I'm not normally someone who's reading comic books or watching the movies based on them or anything yeah, like that. we didn't that. watch The Avengers or yeah. know, whatever people are into. But, you know, I checked out Jessica Jones, and I was pleasantly surprised, so maybe I'll... I'll try to branch out and watch this other female-driven comic book series. Just don't. It's not good. Okay. <laughs> that's really all I have to say about okay, it. Okay, that's some sit up. <laughs> okay, so I think that's our podcast, uh, the Cold Pizza Party podcast. Yeah, hopefully you enjoyed our discussion and all of the interesting things we said about <laughs> <laughs> television and politics. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're interested. You were really tickled by that. (laughs) Uh, It's a little cocky. Well, I was obviously joking because this is all out of context when we're recording it. We obviously recorded the intro and the outro separately. (laughs) So that's why I was was just being general. I didn't think I was being cocky. I was just trying to cover the many things we've we've said that I can't possibly remember. Let's just save this and we'll use this as the outro for every episode since it's so general. (laughs) Okay, so good podcast, guys, and uh, hopefully we'll do a a better outro next time. (laughs) All right, have a good day and week and stuff. Peace. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Bye.